Why is it that men were attracted to Sarah when she was in her elder years? Okay, text. Genesis 12, she's 65 years old, and they want to bring her into Pharaoh's harem. Genesis 20, she's 89 years old. They want to bring her into the harem. And you can't say her body didn't show aging. It did. Because it talks about she is, age has come there. She even says in Genesis 21, look down to about verse 3. She says, when people hear that we've had a children, people are going to laugh that this old couple had children. And so it talks about the way with woman wasn't with her. Why is it that people were attracted, men were attracted to her? Now, one possibility is part of that attraction had nothing to do with the idea that they were after her body, but they were after a peace treaty or some type of um, alliance. And so that had to play with it. But that doesn't explain Pharaoh's attraction to her when she is at the age of 65. Is it she had the fountain of youth that she found in the promised land? What is it that made her so attractive? The Bible gives an answer to this, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, remember? In 1 Peter chapter 3, where it talks about the idea of a woman's conduct, and it talks in that text. Remember it says, if you have somebody who's not a, not a believer, that you're supposed to win your husband through your conversation. And then it goes on and talks about the adorning, let it not be the outward adorning only, where the plating of the hair, the silver and the gold, but let it be the meek and quiet spirit. And it goes on, describes that meek and quiet spirit, and gives the example as being Sarah herself even called her her husband or Abraham, Lord, okay, and talks about her, her interaction with him. So it's more of her character, her conduct, the way she carried herself made her to be an outstanding person. And not just her physical appearance, but her, her um, what do you want to say? Her character, her spirit, her inner person, her inner beauty. Yeah, her inner beauty was outstanding. And she comes up as an example in Scripture. And so she's the focus of the story as we enter into Genesis 21. In Genesis 20, in the last few chapters, we've had all kinds of different discussion already that all of a sudden leading up to Abraham and Sarah, and it's coming to this point. Abraham and Sarah are an older couple, 100 and, you know, years old. She's 90 years old. God has been promising, you're going to have a baby, going to have a baby, going to have a baby. And now we read in Genesis 21, after all these years of promise, some 30 years of promise, now they have the baby. And the baby's a boy. And they get really excited as you read in chapter 21, starting with verse three, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bore unto him, uh, bare unto him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac at eight days old, as the Lord had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old, and his son Isaac when he was born. Sarah says, God had made me to laugh so that all will hear... All that here will laugh with me. She said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck or nurse them? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now, those few verses give us some information. Okay, And from the text, let's just dissect it slightly. It's really a focus on the promises of God. We've been talking about this for now, for the last few weeks. Abraham's been looking for it for the last few years. And notice how the first two verses emphasize this idea that this is a fulfillment of promise. Look at the words that he uses. The Lord visited as he said. It goes on, he did as he had spoken. Verse 2, at the same time of the year which God had spoken to him or to Abraham. And so there's a great emphasis by the writer saying this is a fulfillment of the promise of God. And we understand that. 
We know that, that this isn't normal. They knew it wasn't normal for a couple, 100 years old, 90 years old to have a child. And most people at that age wouldn't want a child. And I'm not trying to demean kids or having children, but at that point in your life, most people would say, the difficulty would be profound. And so God is working, fulfilling his promise. And you and I have to remember this, that in the story, as it's been going now since chapter 12, there are six different times that it is stated she's going to have a child. She's going to have a child. She's going to, or actually, Abraham's going to have a child. In starting in Genesis 12, verse 2, we hear that Abraham, when he's 75 years old, he's told that you're going to have children, and your children will be as the stars of the sky. That's repeated again in chapter 13 verse 15. God says it'll be like the sands uh, of, the, of the ground and the sky and he's basically telling me you're going to have a lot, a lot of offspring, a lot of generations. Then he repeats it again. And he makes it clear in Genesis 15, verse 4. He says that when Abraham's 85, and he's going to be very clear about that, you will have an heir from your own bowels. And the reason that's the case is because he wants to make sure that everybody understands Abraham doesn't adopt an heir. Because Abraham opted that, did he not? Didn't he propose to God, take my servant Eliezer, which would have been customary. And so now it's, it's getting more specific. And so it's Abraham at 85... I'm going to give you a child, I'm going to give you a child. We go a little bit further. That all of a sudden, chapter 17, it's repeated again. This time, the clarification is, it's going to be Sarah who will birth a child. And the reason that he has to clarify that is because, did Abraham have other children by anybody else? He did, Hagar. And they try to substitute that. And God says, that's not the substitute. You offered me Eliezer for an adoption? No. You offered Hagar through a surrogate mother? No. It's going to be you and Sarah, and it's going to be a miracle, baby. It's going to be when you are in your elderly years, latter years, so to speak. Then it's repeated again. Chapter 17, he gives the name, and he says, at this time next year. And so he gives the timing of it. So it's repeated again in chapter 18, where it's told again when Abraham is 99 years old. He's told, you are going to have a child, and Sarah is going to have a child. And so God is repeating this time after time after time, giving them this promise, saying, you're going to have a child. Now, just taking that. And pausing with that and that alone, let's make an observation for you and me that is practical. Okay, in this sense, this is a truism that we say, amen, so be it, we believe it. But sometimes we're challenged to practice it and believe it in our everyday life. God, God's promises are always fulfilled. And we believe that. We will amen that. We will say if we had a quiz or a test, we would mark that answer because we know theologically this is true. However, are there moments that we doubt it when we're asking for a certain prayer request? Are there moments when we doubt it when we say, did you really forgive me of that sin? Will you really work in the heart of this person if I give them the gospel witness? Will your word really, really not return unto you void? Will you really work in my kids' lives when I do what the Bible says? It says, train up a child, and when he is old, he will not depart. God, tell me, is this true? Because there's moments where you're challenged, like Abraham was. And in that period, the greatest challenge for some of these promises is this idea that God's promises are always fulfilled, but we have to remember in his timing. In his timing, not our timing. Thoughts that you can read for yourself. God is in no hurry at times to fulfill his promises. That's not you and me. When God makes a promise that he will meet our needs, when do we want that done? I want it done yesterday. 
Okay, I want that taken care of. When God says, okay, I want you to, you know, to do some ministry, and, and uh, you know, when God says, I'll never give you that which you are unable to bear, I want that done and over with. I don't want to see the trial continue and increase. I want that totally done. And, but it's in his timing, and yet he's never late in his timing. He never forgets his promises. That's a, these are precious thoughts that are theologically correct, but they're helpful for you and I in our everyday life. Let me take it a step further. He promises, his promises are fulfilled as he has said they would be fulfilled, not the way we think they should be, not the way we think or assume or presume that they should be filled. And sometimes has, can you look at points in your life where God answered or God fulfilled a promise to you, but it wasn't the way you thought it was going to be fulfilled? He kind of took you in a roundabout direction. You know, we, we talk about and joked about, and I told you that story several times, that I was praying that, Lord, we, we're asking for this, we're asking for a vehicle, and we're praying and saying, God, we really need this, this is a need, but we couldn't afford it. And in a very roundabout way, after he crashed our only vehicle, we were praying for a second one for free. It ended up in a very roundabout way over several weeks after we totaled the one vehicle that we had, that we ended up with two vehicles for the same price. And that wasn't the way I would have chosen it to happen. It wasn't my concept of saying, okay, three months later, things would be resolved. But God, in his timing and in his plan, he will fulfill his promises as he makes sure that he, well, let's rephrase this. God cannot lie. It's very clearly stated in Titus. God who cannot lie. He never, he never gives us a promise and then balks on it. Before you claim or ask a promise, now here's, here's something you need to think about. Okay? If God never, never lies and God fulfills all promises, therefore I can go to the Word of God and claim any promise that's written in the Word of God. True or false? You can claim any promise written in the Bible. Hmm. You're laughing at me, Lou. Why? Is it a leading question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. You have to ask yourself a couple questions here. Okay. You have to ask yourself, is this promise a personal or universal promise? Let me give you an idea of what I mean. Okay. Let's do a little bit of Bible jumping for a moment. This one you know right off the top of your head. It says in Romans ten thirteen what? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord... Okay, is that for a, an individual or is it for any and all individuals? How do you know for any and all? For whosoever, for whosoever. Let's jump to Luke 9, for Luke chapter 9, okay? Just to get an idea of a promise. Are they for a single person or are they for many people? Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, jump down to verse 23. He says this, and this is the Lord speaking. He said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Individual or universal? How do you know it's universal? The whosoever makes it very clear. Let's jump to Acts. Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, there's a story in this about what's happening to the Apostle Paul. He's ministering, and he's sharing the Word of God, and he's getting a lot of opposition. And it's especially, it's happening in the city of Corinth. Jump down in Acts chapter 18, jump down to about verse 9. In Acts 18, verse 9, Then God spake, the, then spake the Lord to Paul in, at night by a vision. 
And God said these words, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not your peace. For I am with you, and no man shall set on you to hurt you. For I have much people in this city. Is that a universal or a personal, an individual promise? Okay, it's, how do you know it's personal? Wait, doesn't, doesn't verse 10 say, I am with thee? And doesn't he say elsewhere, he's with us always? Yes or no? It says that, but argue with me here. Yes. 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 Yeah, this is a very specific moment and occasion. Now he's saying, to you, Paul, I have much people in the city. Let's, let's check out another one. Let's go to Exodus. In Exodus, there's two texts that we want to just check briefly. Exodus 15, verse 26, and one that, you, that a lot of you know. Okay, Genesis, Genesis, and then Exodus, second book in the Bible, verse, chapter 15, verse 26. He is speaking, he says, If you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon you, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that heals you. Does God heal people? Yes. Is this a promise that we can claim that he will give us none of the diseases? This was made to the Israelites in a certain occasion at a certain time in their life. In fact, go to chapter 23. Chapter 23, here's a promise that he makes. And we have to see, okay, is it for all of us? Is it for a certain people? He starts, let's jump down into the text. Like verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works. But you shall utterly overthrow them. This is the invasion of Canaan. And quite, <clears throat> and quite break down their images. You shall serve the Lord your God, and, you, and he shall bless you with bread and with water. And I will take sickness away from the midst of you. There shall nothing cast their, there shall nothing cast their young nor the barren in your land. The number of the da thy days I will fulfill. I will send my fear before you, will destroy all the people to whom you shall come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs unto thee. I will send hornets before, and they will drive out the Hivite, Canaanite, and Hittite from before you. Can we claim that and say this is for us today when we are dealing with the unchurched in our community who don't get born again? No. No, this is a specific promise to a specific group of people. So you have to ask yourself when we claim promises and be careful this way. Well, the Word of God says this. True, the Word of God may say this, but is it a promise that is for you and me? Okay, specifically. Let's jump to another one. Okay, ask yourself this question. Is it a conditional or what's the opposite? Either conditional or unconditional promise. Okay, are there some unconditional promises given in the Word of God? James chapter 4, verse 10, where he makes a comment to the believers in James 4, 10. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the passage that talks about if you humble yourself. In verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Is there a condition for the Lord lifting us up? Let me say it again. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Okay, the promise is he will lift us up. Is there a condition? Okay, the condition is, okay, we have to humble ourselves. There's a passage that it kind of, it just irritates me that it gets grabbed so often. The passage is, my God shall supply all your needs in Philippians, in the book of Philippians. We, people will grab that all the time, but in context, the previous verse is, those people who are giving to the Lord's work that have sacrificed, then he says, I shall, my God shall meet all your needs. There's a, there's a condition met there for those individuals. 
Okay, there, there's a condition about the idea of, well, I will answer any prayers. Yes, if you, okay, John 15, if you obey my commands and if you walk with me, those who love the Lord, he talks about. Here, here's a condition, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. He makes the, the comment in chapter Hebrews chapter 13. Another promise that he has made, is this a condition or is this just an unconditional statement that is basically wide open to anyone where he says this? And I'm in Hebrews 13 verse 5, the second part. He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Conditional or unconditional? He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Uh, unstated is to believers. Is there any other condition that's given in this passage? No. No, we would say, okay, that's an unconditional one. That he's basically saying, okay, you don't have to do something, but I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Here's the other aspect that you have to ask. Is it an eternal promise or is it a temporal promise, a time-bound promise? Such as this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, he makes a comment about what he's going to do and it has to do with the Holy Spirit. And he's making this comment to the crowds that are there and Peter reads from the book of Joel or quotes from the book of Joel and has this comment, It shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. There's a promise that he's going to give the spirit and people are going to have revelatory gifts at that time. Is this time-bound, or is it universal and eternal in the sense that at any time, at any moment? Well, look, the passage says, in the last days. Already. So what does he say? It's a time-bound promise. There are a lot of occasions and situations in Scripture that we have to look and say, when we take a promise and claim the promise, we need to look at what? What's that big word we always throw out here for Bible study? You have to look at context. You have to look at context and say, okay, is this promise a general promise to all? Is it even effective in our time period, that is, in dispensation of the age of grace? And we have to ask as well, is it conditional or unconditional? When God makes a promise, and if it's conditional, if we do our part, he's going to fulfill it. If he makes a promise and it applies to all of us, he's going to fulfill it. If he says, okay, I'm going to make you a promise and you live in this time period where the promise is, he's going to fulfill it. It's not a matter of God ever balking. It's the idea that God keeps his words. As a result, let's take Abraham and Sarah in those first four verses. They get God's promises. They were very pointed. Now, I hope none of you claim the promises of Abraham and Sarah and say, okay, God's promising me a child because he promised one to Sarah. Therefore, this is my claim as well. You can't do that. That was a personal promise to her. You know, somebody say, well, you know, this, this verse spoke to my heart that at this time next season you shall bear a son and you shall call him Isaac. Oh, God just spoke to my heart. It impacted my heart, therefore I'm going to have a child next year. That was a personal, time-bound promise to her. And yet, what do we learn about the promise made to her? How did she react to it? That's a principle we can grab onto, that when she experienced the fulfillment of promise, what was her response? It was praise. Look at the passage right away. Or these individuals, as soon as they hear about it, they're given to praise. She talks about her laughter. The last time she laughed when she was talking about a pregnancy, was when she was told Sarah's going to have a baby. And she laughs inside the tent, and her laughter was not out of belief. It was a laughter of 
disbelief. And it was, yeah, right. Now we're a year later and she talks about laughter once again. And in this time, the laughter is very positive. When people see that I have had a baby, they're going to laugh, not like, ha, 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 you know, you know, you know good, good. For you. They're going to laugh more of that idea of rejoicing with her and celebrating with her. And so the name Isaac has both applications. One time there was unbelief. This time there's thrill and excitement. And so her response to the promises of God are real enthusiasm, real praise. This is cool. This is something God has done. Then you have another response by Abraham. His response to the fulfillment of promise is not, okay, God has given me this, this child. Therefore, I can do what I want because I'm really favored of God. Absolutely not. His response is, God has told me this is what I must do. God has given the command of circumcision and that whole identification for the Jews. And I'm going to have to carry this out <clears throat> because this is the command for me at this time period in that, in that um, dispensation of the patriarchs, he was supposed to show his faith by carrying this out. Abraham does. To this special child, he's going to do what God has said because this is something that God had required of him. No hesitation, okay? That as well, he named the child Isaac. That was going to be the easy one. But he's saying, okay, we're responding. We're going to do. Because of what God has blessed us with, I'm going to respond with obedience. There's another response. There's the witnessing response. The witnessing response is having the celebration, having the feast. By the way, there's no indication that they've left Gerar at this point. Okay, where they had had the problems with Ahimelech last week, okay, in that same area, and Abimelech. And so he, the, the point is that they are having this celebration, they're rejoicing, and it's going to be a witnessing opportunity or a celebration that God has blessed us. And so they're keeping their, their joy, they're sharing that with others. And so the reaction that they have is not taking for granted the promises of God. Not even as, as the two, three years, whatever the weaning period was, that they're still going to have the celebration. They are, they are excited about God's promises because they waited for 30 years roughly for them, 25 years. And so they're enthusiastic about the promise and they are making every, every opportunity to just rejoice in God's promises. So we can look at the story and keep a couple things in mind. Okay, from that story. God didn't make these promises just to speak. You know how sometimes there's this gap in a conversation? You ever been in a conversation though there's, there's a gap that lasts more than 10, 20 seconds? What do you feel like you have to do if all of a sudden you're standing there just kind of looking at each other? come on, you're, I'm not the only one in this room, am I? That feels like somebody, somebody's got to say something. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, okay, I need to fill in the, the, the vacuum here and I'm just going to say things for the sake. God doesn't do that. God purposely makes promises with a plan in mind. And so when he doesn't arrive, when he doesn't fulfill it in our timetable, that doesn't mean he's late or he's tardy by accident is by divine appointment that sometimes the promises are delayed by God's sovereign knowledge of what's going on he is he is making sure that it is the best time for fulfillment in those promises keep in mind that we need to forget our timetable when we come to the Lord when it comes to his promises we remind him we pray to him but we cannot we cannot get so frustrated. And Satan knows one of the hardest things for us to do is to wait. We're waiting. Okay, let, let me see if I can illustrate this way. What is some of the most, you've talked to people, what is some of the most horrible time for people who have heard the cancer word? Okay, waiting for what? Waiting for results. 
you get the test, and then you have to wait for the results, and then you have to wait for a regimen, and that period of waiting is just mind-boggling. And it's really difficult because you want to get into it and take some action. Well, Satan knows that we're, not, we're people that we, we, we want to do. We want to have action. And yet sometimes, like in Psalms, what does he say? Wait, and again I say, wait. And it's so difficult. So at those times, when we're waiting like Abraham and Sarah did, keep on doing what Abraham did. Implore God for the patience. Implore for strength to help you through day by day by day. You ever get into a trial, and it's a difficult moment, and you got a con- you got something that you're dealing with the next day, and and it is just oh man, it's it's stealing your sleep. How long does that night feel? Forever, and you just gotta wait, wait without being anxious. Don't seek to manipulate people or events. When you're in that time period of waiting on the promises of God to be fulfilled, don't, don't take it upon yourself to, okay, I'm going to make something happen. Isn't that what Sarah, Sarah and Abraham tried to do when it came to Hagar? Where they were manipulating the situation. Because when we do that, we're no longer trusting the Lord. We're trusting in self. We're trusting in others. And so you and I need to have this whole idea of let's just wait. And again, I say wait upon the Lord. And so that's because we have a God who keeps his word. Now the story goes on and it gives us a whole nother feature. A whole nother twist to the story. They are celebrating. There is great joy. And then what happens in the next verse? In the next verse, in the middle of this whole celebratory attitude for the promise of God, we read of a conflict. Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who's the boy? What's his name? Ishmael. Okay, this is Abraham's other son that was birthed to them by Hagar, the, the, the surrogate mother, the handmaid of Sarah, that they, they had connived that this is how Abraham's going to have a child which she had born unto Abraham, he was mocking Isaac, the younger one. Wherefore, Sarah says to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman will not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. The thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. The Lord God says to Abraham, Let it not be so grievous in your sight because of the lad and because of your bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto you, hearken to her voice. For in Isaac shall your seed be called, not Ishmael. Okay, And also the son of the bondwoman, will I make another or a nation because he is thy seed? But what nation does he make? What groups of people? Okay, the Arabs. The Arabs for the most part. The Arab peoples. Okay, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, took bread and a bottle of water and gave it to Hagar, that's the servant, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent them away. She departs and wanders into the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water spent in the bottle will pick up there after a bit. Here's what you got. You got problems. You've got promises And he's saying we've got promises of God, but Abraham also has problems. Problems that come right at the same time as the promises. Can we make an observation? If you were to define Abraham's problems and list them out in this passage, one is his wife doesn't get along with somebody in the household. That's so unusual that two ladies don't get along in the same household. That is just so odd. The servant's wife doesn't respect the, the boss, the, the, you know, Abraham's wife. It goes on, her, the older son is not treating the younger son properly. Aren't you glad that never happens in your household? Okay, that your kids get along all the time? You have this problem. The wife becomes very angry about the way the kids are acting. Good thing that doesn't happen in our homes. His wife demands he do, does something. Right now, do something. The older son who he thought, remind, remind, uh, remember this, Abraham thought Ishmael was going to be his heir. 
Ishmael is like 17 years old. Right even before, up to that time, he even asked God, take Ishmael, take Ishmael. He's, and he, God has to clarify, Ishmael is not your heir. Let me throw this out. If Abraham thought Ishmael was his heir when he was getting to be about 15 years of age, who else do you think thought he was going to be the heir? Hagar as well. I'm thinking of a young boy. I would think, well, Isaac's not around yet, before Isaac's birth. Ishmael probably has that same thought too because dad is probably, yeah, you would think, you know, this is in dad's mind. The wife wanted the son to be kicked out, okay? Get, the, get, you, get your son out of the house. The wife wants her servant to be kicked out of the house. The pressure it, it goes on. The area, if they kick him out, this is dangerous, literally dangerous around them. There's the, the, the fields, the terrain, everything has a danger. If the son gets kicked out, he could die. Because of the threats outside the home. You ever have people have these concerns about somebody being put out of their house? He goes on. You know, he loves his older son. Because he makes the comment, this is grievous because of his son and, and Wells the handmaid. So Abraham is bothered by this. Abraham has got this family crisis that is taking place. And part of the family crisis was created by Abraham. Okay, part of this is what Abraham chose to do 16, 17 years ago by listening to his wife. You know, so a lot of this conflict that has happened is because his wife made this, the issue. And he agreed with her. And so they are doing the proverbial, we are reaping what decisions we sold. And so, but it's a major problem. Just, despite the fact of why, why it's happening, it's happening. And in this happenstance, there is really some tension going on. Tension between the people, between the ladies, tension between the ladies and the kids, tension between the kids, to, some, to one-sided anyway, tension now between Abraham and his wife. His wife who is, who is favored, his wife who has just bore him a child. And so this is a serious, serious situation. For Abraham. So he's got to deal with it. So let's make an observation. Family conflicts do occur. Even in good homes, there are tense moments. Now, how you handle them is a real test. But to say, okay, we are a Christian home. We never have temptation for tem- tension in our home. Okay? That, that's probably not realistic for most of us. Most of us, in fact, let me state a statement that sounds almost heretical. Being in the will of God... Being in the will of God does not mean there's not going to be any conflicts or tensions in your family. Abraham's in the will of God. He's doing what God has told him to do at this point. It doesn't mean that, okay, no, no difficulties, no, you know, no misunderstandings or you know, some, some f- people conflicts, people not getting along, and parents not getting along with the kids and all this. Okay, and again, that doesn't excuse. I'm not saying, okay, because this is a real reality, it doesn't mean, okay, then we should just, we have, we have tensions in the home, therefore, you know, let's just grin and bear it, and it's going to happen, and therefore we shouldn't even strive to try to correct them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. I think it's, I think it's horrible that when Christian homes' tension explodes, and there's the anger, and the yelling, and the screaming, I think that is just dead, 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 deadbeat wrong in front of the Lord God. That's not the way we should respond. But the fact is, we are going to have difficulties. There are going to be the temptations. There are going to be, you know, the tensions. Now, how we handle them is another story. Let's take this thought. 
At times, they would come as a result, and this is true of our lives. At times, some of the problems that we face come as a result of our own decisions from time past. Sometimes, we, we today, like in Abraham's case, we suffer some difficulties because of things we've done, the way we treated people in the past, how we handled the situation. And it still comes back to haunt us to some degree. And so that's true. That happens at times. Sometimes they happen because of long-standing tensions that come to a head. There's been problems between Hagar and um, Sarah now for all the times, all the time that, this, that Ishmael's been in the picture, ever since she got pregnant by Abraham, because Sarah said, go unto my servant and have a child by her. And as soon as she becomes pregnant, then Sarah's mad that he listened to her. And so these tensions just grow, grow, grow. And tensions, usually, they come to an eruption. Well, it happens here in this passage, that all of a sudden things explode. There's another reason why sometimes conflicts arise. We need to make change. There is a a reason that in this text, a change had to occur. Something, it, it could not continue going on, and God is involved with saying, you've got to change some ways. So this tension is built to the point that God says, hey, something's got to stop. Something's got to change. And I, again, I am surmising that Ishmael knew what Dad has said to God even, that he had offered and said Ishmael was going to be my heir. And in Abraham's mind, Ishmael was his heir. Until God said, no, you're going to have a child by Sarah, and his name is going to be Isaac. And so you have this growing thought that Ishmael may be looking to say, he's getting old enough, he's 16, 17 years of age, he's looking to say, you know, I'm my own man, what do I get out of this? Do do 16, 17-year-olds who are growing up in this environment, do they want to have their stuff? Okay, so he's at that age. He's at that age where in that society he would be able to be aware of, okay, what are my cattle? What is my tent? What is my property? What am I going to get out of this? So it just builds and it grows. There's a fact that's very true about family conflicts. They're usually not easy to resolve. They're really easy to resolve if you're giving advice to somebody else. You say, just do this and it'll go away. But for the people in the middle of the tension and conflict, usually it takes a little while to work it through. And so here he's going to have to work with it. And usually they require drastic, hard steps to correct. Now, what I find amazing in this text is what happens in conversation. Sarah is going to say, in this case, she wants Ishmael out of the house. And I'm going to take it from the tenor in my, the way I would think, that Sarah is ticked. Sarah is upset. And Sarah is not saying, speaking unto Abraham as Lord. And real sweet-spirited. I get the impression that when she comes in verse 10, and it says that she says to Abraham, after she saw this other boy mocking her child, I get the impression she's a mama bear. And the claws are out. And she is saying to him, you get this, this bondwoman and her son, you cast them out of this house. And she is not saying, Abraham, whatever you think you should do. Because the reaction of Abraham is, he's broken by this. He is, abs- he is feeling the pressure. And I think her words are pressure-filled words, that she is being very demanding. And she wants them. She's upset. She wants Hagar out of, uh, and Ishmael out of the picture. You know what strikes me really funny and really odd is what God says. God says she's right. She's absolutely right. By the way, is it possible 
Is it possible you can be right, but you can say it the wrong way? Yeah, yeah, okay. So in this story, I think this is, this is a real reality, okay? That even though we may be right, that doesn't mean we can say it any way we want. So she's putting pressure. She's she's has a solution, but because the way she presented the solution, boy, that causes him a lot of consternation and a lot of difficulty. But God comes to him, and God is going to say, Abraham, you know what? Your wife's right. You should do as as Sarah said. Now, the last time, did he get in trouble listening to his wife? Yeah. Okay, last time was the beginning of all this problem. So you can understand why he's a little bit hesitant. And God says to him, let it not be grievous in your sight. And because of your bondwoman. Now, wait a minute. Let it not be grievous in your sight. What is he concerned about? If he kicks Ishmael out, what is some of the concerns? What's causing him grief? His child's safety. Oh, don't worry. God is saying, don't let it be grievous. That's not so easy, is it? If you're the parent in this picture and you're saying, okay, the right thing to do is to let the child move out of the house and it's not going to bother you. Most of us would say, it still would bother me. It's, I'm still concerned. He's my flesh and blood. You know, and, and, and I care about him. And God is saying, okay, here's a matter of faith and trust. Let it not be grievous. What you need to do is you need to let him go. And here's why. Okay? The part of it is, he's, God is saying, this is the good idea he goes, because we need to protect from any future harm, any, any more problems that can arise. Because is Ishmael going to pose a threat to Isaac as time goes by? Do their generations pose threats? Absolutely. Okay, so God knowing all this is saying, okay, this is the wiser thing to do. We need to protect, protect from further harm and hurts. Not only physical harm and hurt, but who else is being protected here? Not just the child, but is there somebody else who is being harmed by all this tension? Sarah, okay? What is eating at Sarah? Jealousy, bitterness. Does that ever cause ill effects? Yeah. Okay, so he puts out and he says, okay, the child has to go. But there's also the bad influences that are here. Now remember, Hagar is from what country? Egypt, okay? And if you go down to the end of the story, where does she want her son to find his wife? You go to the, from Egypt, and she wants to make sure he's married to an Egyptian. In other words, you know, they took the, they took the woman out of Egypt, but they didn't get the Egypt out of the woman, okay? And so there's a problem here. And so God in protecting is saying, okay, this is the wise thing to do. We need, it's, they're big people. And besides, if they go into the wilderness where you're afraid for them, guess what I will do? And God, God promises, I will take care of them. And I will raise up a nation. And he gives Abraham that, that confidence that I am going to protect. I will watch over them. I will take care of them. And so Abraham, he handles it. He lets them go. He has them leave the house. And so what I want to make a contrast for just a moment is this. 16 years earlier when he was under the gun and a lot of pressure from his wife and a lot of tensions, and now we have you know, that 16, 17 years later, there's a lot of tensions and pressures and there's another difficulty. In what ways did Abraham handle this, this second one better than he did the first? And I think it goes this way. This time he's taking personal responsibility. Remember last time what he said when she came up with an idea and she was haranguing him? He said to her, do whatever you please with the woman. He doesn't say that this time. 
he is in this, he is this time saying, okay, wait a minute, I've got to make the decision. Last time I told her to do whatever. Okay, you treat her however you want. He says, not this time, I can't do that. Okay, that didn't work last time. And so now he's feeling the pressures. He's got to be more actively involved in the decision-making here. He goes to the Lord. There's a conversation between, it doesn't say he approached the Lord. It just says God spoke to him. Okay, when you look in chapter 21, and they have, there's a conversation that it talks about, and God said to Abraham in verse 12. Okay, there's a conversation somewhere. He is in the spot, he is in the place, and he and God have a conversation about it. Last time, there was no seeking the Lord. It wasn't even mentioned. Okay, but this time, there is the idea that we're going to have this conversation. This time, he takes steps that are outlined in God's revelation. Last time, he didn't. Last time, he followed customs. He followed what was the norm for the people around him. This time, he's going to be following the word of God. He's got very specific revelation that you let the child go, and I'm going to take care of the child, etc., etc. This time, he has to trust God for the results. He's not manipulating. They're not maneuvering. They're not trying to make it work the way they think it should. This time, I have to let go and let God. And he does in the middle of this conflict. Does it ever happen with people conflicts that you have to live this way? Yeah. Yeah. And you say, oh man, I, if I could just do this, if I could just trust God, let you do what you, what you know is right to do and trust the Lord in the results and let, it, let God take care of it. That, I think that's very hard to do. Okay, especially in people conflicts. I think the tension and the pressure, and especially with his family, and we just got to get it and we got to resolve it or prove ourselves right and you know, make sure that, you know, that I come out on top. And it's not that way okay, for, for us as believers in all cases. Major lessons are very simple. They go this way. Sinful consequences. Okay? And they do happen. We can be forgiven, but that doesn't mean the, the consequences go away. Sinful consequences, or consequences from previous sins, they're going to be disturbing. They are. Okay? He's got a disturbing situation, but they don't have to defeat him. Just because we failed in the past doesn't mean we have to just give up in the present. We can continue. I think that's where David made the mistake. David, when he's dealing with his sons, because of his sin with Bathsheba and what he had done, when his sons duplicate his sin, what does he do? Nothing. What paralyzed David so much? I think his own guilt. His own guilt in saying, well, I did it. Who am I to tell them? You know, and, not, and not Abraham. Abraham is going to say, okay, I made decisions in the past that were bad, but they do not have to defeat me today. I do not have to, don't have to compound them. Family conflicts, they disrupt. You know they disrupt. They, they just absolutely disrupt your peace. They disrupt your whole meal, your eating, your sleeping, but they don't have to destroy. They don't have those pressures, that family, your physical family, your spiritual family. They don't have to destroy us even though they, they may be disruptive. The stressful decisions that you face, they distract. They, they do. They just pull your attention, even though you're trying to do other things. If you have some stressful dis decision to make, man, you can be in the middle of, middle of driving down the road and do, making, a, making a delivery or doing something, but it's there. Okay? It can distract, but it doesn't have to demoralize us. Because we have a God who is going to be faithful. As long as we handle the situations carefully, God's way, as soon as possible, with compassion and as well trusting him. And we move forward. And we say, God, okay, it does happen. There are difficulties. There are tensions. But if we handle them your way, we'll just trust you for the results.
Some simple lessons, but profound where we live day by day.